0: Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning.
1: A trivial bit of follow-up from last episode. I had made a little quip about the solid silver cars, and it turns out that the car that I had in mind was was a hoax. So it wasn't actually a solid silver car. Uh, it was a an Audi A8 that had been... Essentially stripped down to the bare metal and then polished to a very high degree, and then clear coated. And the end of result, after pulling some stunts on some of the plastic components of the vehicle with metallic paints, uh, they pulled off a, a car that one could say looks like it's made of silver, but it is in fact just highly polished aluminum. To the best of my knowledge. There are no silver cars. Hmm, interesting. It does remind me of the story of the
0: Mercedes racing team. Uh, They're often referred to as the silver arrows. Uh, The origin of that goes back to the 1950s when they decided to strip the paint off of their racing cars in order to save a couple of kilos of weight. And of course, that made them silver because it was revealing the aluminum underneath. And as you alluded to with this one. And so they continue painting their cars silver uh, and are
1: continually known as the Silver Arrows. I did not know that. And when you see some of the the pieces being produced by the Black Badger, I don't know if you're familiar with them, uh, but he's done these pieces recently with Fordite, uh, which is essentially just these chunks of paint, layer upon layer upon layer, that are taken out of the paint booths from factories that are painting cars and as these layers of paint build up it gets quite heavy as you say the mercedes team was able to shave off several kilograms of weight from the vehicle just by removing the paint and if you think about cars getting painted over and over and over and over again inside these booths and just the the build up of the overspray that's taking place that you can end up with almost like a geode or probably more appropriately, a a candy known as a jawbreaker that that some of our audience may be familiar with. And uh, as you polish this away or or cut it in half, you can get some really neat effects with color. And they've been doing, or he has been doing, rather, uh, some really neat stuff with it uh, from different clocks and and watches to a recent collaboration with Bamford in London, which will link to in the show notes.
0: Yeah, I've seen a few people in the pen world who use Fordite as a material for their pens. And thanks to the various strata, it leaves different visible layers. And then depending on the batches of cars that are being painted, uh, some of the colors will be more prevalent than others. It's never been a particularly interesting material for me, but it's uh, interesting to see it being used as a dial. Very much like mokume. it can uh, lead to some interesting designs. A lot of custom paint jobs these days are being done with wraps, Uh, The new wrap technology is absolutely outstanding. Uh, We saw a crazy AMG Mercedes in Macau when we were there a few years ago, and this wrap was done in a bright purple chrome. It was the most gaudy looking car you've ever seen, Uh, but it is an impressive feat when it's done right. And a lot of the crazy stuff that you see people doing with car painting now is actually being done with wraps. It's a lot cheaper than doing a paint job, and it can be replaced easily once you decide you want to change up the color for something different. Another bit of follow-up from last episode about the Goldsmiths' Congress. The papers for the Goldsmiths' Congress are now online, and there's a link in the show notes to those papers. I was also able to go through and confirm a few of the details from last week's episode. We discussed the different platinum alloys that Teresa Frey was talking about, Uh, the ones that were more ideal for casting. And it was a cobalt alloy of platinum. It was 4.5% cobalt and 95.5% platinum. It's listed as a platinum 9.5 cobalt 5 alloy. And the paper goes into the technical reasons as to why it's better than some of the other uh, alloys that are available right now for platinum. And I did confirm that the alloy that Martin was using for the Claret jug was in fact titanium, and he's using an alloy that has 1% titanium and 99% gold.
1: And Martin refers to this as a, a microalloy or microalloyed, which isn't a term I've encountered before. Do you know much about the, the meaning behind this term?
0: Microalloying is referring to any time you're adding a very small amount of a secondary element to the base metal. Uh, so it's basically pure metal plus a very small amount of this micro alloy. And depending on the alloy, it can have uh, rather intriguing effects. This paper discusses a few of the alternatives that he was considering. Uh, there were a number, I think there were three or four different pure gold alloys that he was considering for the project. And this discusses why he chose this particular one over another. And there's also a lot more discussion in the original paper, which was presented at the Santa Fe Symposium in 2010. Uh, That one goes into more technical details about the construction methods for it. And so he talks about which parts were spun, how he raised certain parts. Uh, Some of the parts were cast as well. And then he also discusses the assembly of it. So there were uh, long welds that were done using a laser welder. Uh, There was also some uh, long solder seams that were being done, and that particular paper goes into a lot more technical detail as to how he actually made it. Now, not long
1: after drinking claret from this jug, uh, you meandered over to the Greenwich Observatory, uh, and sadly, well, not unexpectedly, it was a a cloudy day, so so you didn't get to... Hey, that was the
0: one cloudy day we had while we were in London. In fact I think we only had a couple of cloudy days uh that trip it was uh, it was pretty good and in fact if we had gone back later that afternoon the sundial would have worked beautifully so yeah we did go to the Greenwich observatory uh we took the train out there and spent most of the day wandering around Greenwich uh, it's a beautiful park a beautiful observatory as well it's uh, nice to be able to wander around and see a lot of the little details that uh, you don't always pick up every time you're there and uh, so we we did enjoy wandering through uh, one of the little details we saw was a board game that was made by the sister of one of the astronomers royal. Uh, it was a Victorian board game, and it was designed to teach young ladies more about astronomy, uh, as she was an astronomer herself. And uh, so, this board game was was a way for her to actually teach um, teach people a little bit more. It's also interesting to learn a little bit more about the prime meridian. Uh, this is where longitude 0 is and uh and of course that's where the origin of sort of time zones comes from is that uh that's where it, that's where it begins that's the the that break between east and west and it was interesting to learn that the astronomers royal would in fact go and change the prime meridian based on where their new telescope was being built so a number of them had built different telescopes as the technology improved. And instead of tearing down the old telescope, they would, in fact, uh, build the new one 20 feet further down the building. And once it was complete, they would actually change the prime meridian to that new location. Uh, so the existing prime meridian, I believe, is the third different one that the Astronomers Royal uh, chose.
1: It'd be interesting to know how much of an effect tectonic plates movement has on, on the position of the prime meridian relative to the stars?
0: Well, I don't think tectonic plates are going to have a significant influence on it. You're going to see more effect from the wobble of the Earth. So as the Earth is wobbling, the position of the stars in the sky is changing relative to the Earth. So for instance, what we consider the North Star today is not the same as, let's say, the Egyptians would have uh, used as a North Star. So if you take a look at the pyramids, for instance, they're all lined up perfectly along one edge pointing north, but it's off by something like four or five degrees. And the reason for that is because the North Star that they were looking at 3,500 years ago is a different star than what we currently look at. And so I think that actually has a more significant impact on where the stars are relative to the night sky. And then, you know, and then, of course, on top of that, tectonic plate movement is pretty slow.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, people are often surprised when I tell them that Polaris was not always the North Star.
0: Yeah, it's one of those funny details. People just think about it as being, well, of course, that's where the North Star has always been. And, you know, it's the same thing with the moon. It's moving very, very slowly. I think it's something like an inch per year. It's moving very slowly away from the Earth. Uh, But, of course, these things are happening at astronomical scales and astronomical timelines. So it's difficult for most people to notice what's going on.
1: And just as a quick factoid for listeners, the previous North Star was Thuban, also known as Alpha triconus So did anything stand out for you within the, the exhibitions within the Greenwich Museum?
0: Yeah, I always enjoy going through them. And in particular, I love looking at Harrison's clocks. They have H1 through H4 set up, and uh, the first three are working, which is nice to see. Uh, they haven't always been in good enough condition that they've been set and running, uh, but they currently are, and it's nice to see that. Yeah, H4 isn't running, but I think that's primarily because it's not particularly interesting to look at, and it is it is rather delicate compared to the other ones. Uh, certainly H1 through 4 are more interesting to look at. They're really more clocks than watches, and uh, they have impressive escapements that are interesting to see.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, both H four and H five are much more delicate than their predecessors, so to to leave them running would require significantly more upkeep and maintenance for the the museums themselves, uh, and would also induce wear on the on the pivots and whatnot because they are just an order of magnitude or more it's smaller in terms of their diameter, so the the amount of wear that that can take place over the years is significantly greater. Yeah,
0: absolutely. When you're looking at it uh, at H one through three, they're really clocks and not watches. Whereas H four and five, even though they're oversized for what we consider to be a pocket watch, they really star, still are watch class in terms of their size. So yeah, the wear and tear on them would be significant. So I can understand why they don't leave them running.
1: One of the things that stuck with me from the first time that I saw the H four was the the diamond endstone, or capstone rather for the for the balance
0: yeah I don't think that the diamond capstone is visible on display right
1: now in the vein of the h four or of note is is Derek Pratt's reconstruction of it, which I don't believe he actually finished before passing away but but it's really neat to see the the process uh, that went into to recreating it
0: yeah it was completely... Unfortunately, he didn't finish it before he passed away, and it was completed by Fraudsham, I believe. Uh, there's actually a great book. I think you have a copy of it as well on the process, and there's also a good DVD series as well. Uh, I know they're available through the BHI, and I suspect the book is available through other people as well. Uh, it's an excellent look at the process and what was involved in making
1: it. Just some great, honest insights into some real bona fide watchmaking.
0: Yeah, it is remarkable that Derek was able to do it. Obviously, the original piece was impressive for somebody like Harrison, who was not a trained horologist. He he was, in fact, a cabinet maker. So, you know, obviously it was remarkable that he was able to make that piece himself. But I suspect that a lot of the components were made for him by other people, uh, things like the hairspring and whatnot. So it's impressive that Derek was able to make as much of it as he was uh, by himself. And... I suspect if he had lived, he would have made, been able to, to finish it. Uh, but it is a remarkable piece, and uh, I'm really happy to see that Fraajam has taken up the cause and finished the work.
1: Mm-hmm. And to Harrison's credit, that what he pulled off in his lifetime is nothing short of remarkable as well. World-changing, really, the, the leap from the H3 to the H4. and the fact that he went through what he did to receive the the Longitude Prize, or what he did end up receiving of the Longitude Prize, is uh, a sad story. Uh, but uh, there is better told in other places. Places like the I think the book, the Longitude Story, does a, a good job of delving into the subject.
0: It is an excellent book. And yeah, when you see the four pieces side by side, you really do appreciate the enormity of what he was able to accomplish with H4 and the significant technical leap between them. Uh, But when you see H3 and H4 sitting beside each other, you realize that what he was able to accomplish in miniaturizing it, along with increasing its accuracy, is an incredible feat of engineering. And that's something that I really like seeing at the observatory. They have a collection of marine chronometers, which you can see without paying to get in. It's a little room that's off on the side of the building. A lot of people sort of duck into it and take a quick look and and just walk out. But if you go through them, it's interesting because most of them are marine chronometers, which were put into service. And once they were retired from the ships they were on, either because the ship was retired or they put more advanced technology into the ship, Uh, They often get donated to Greenwich and added to their collection. So this is a great chance to see functional marine chronometers that were put into use. These weren't just prototypes or something like that. These were actually put into regular service as marine chronometers. Uh, They were helping with navigation. They were helping people keep alive. And they're all descendants of H4. Uh, Somebody eventually might have made something that looked like H4, uh, but these are all direct descendants of that technology that Harrison made.
1: Mm-hmm. It's, it's essentially the technology that allowed England to dominate the seas for so long, and the leap there from the H three to H four. And looks like it looks like they're made by completely different people. Now, while on the subject of Harrison's clocks, there was a, an interesting blog post by Jonathan Betts, posted on the Antiquarian Horological Society's website recently. And in the post, Jonathan Betts recounts his time spent at Greenwich restoring Harrison's H1 and, and getting an, an unexpected visit from Neil Armstrong. Uh, and the reason this this came up recently is because we've recently reached the, the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. Uh, so it's, it's neat to... to Get this small anecdote uh, about some other history that that is tangential to to the H uh, one. So we'll, we'll link to that post in the show notes as well. Now, while you were in London, you didn't just make it over to to Greenwich and everything you got up to in our previous episode, but you were also able to to rendezvous with uh, quite a number of people while you were there. Yeah, while I was there,
0: I had a chance to have drinks with Matt, the watch nerd. Uh, He and I try to meet up whenever I'm in town. And in fact, Thursday that I landed, I was trying to stay awake, so I thought I'd go out for a wander and meet up with him. So he and I spent a few hours chatting, and while we were chatting, I was talking about the new dial on my watch. So he suggested that we meet up with uh, Lee UN Reputee, who is known better on Instagram and Twitter as One Hour Watch. Uh, He's professionally studied the art of typography. He has a master's degree studying typography uh, as it relates to horology. And it was nice to meet up with Lee. And uh, I've been following him for a couple of years now. And it was uh, was good to be able to chat with him. If you don't follow him on Instagram or Twitter, he does a drawing every day uh, where he spends one hour sketching out a watch. And uh, it's crazy some of the work that he's able to do Considering that he's only ever spending an hour at most on these designs. And a lot of his designs are interesting. Um, I think he's, he's a little over 1,800 now. And what he's done is remarkable. I, I don't think there's anything like that that I've done 1,800 of in a row. And so it was nice to meet up with Lee in person and chat with him a little bit about uh, what I'm doing. And thanks to Matt, of course, for the introduction to Lee. It was uh, quite fortuitous that Lee was available and that we were able to sit down and chat and uh, meet up with him. And I think you met up with him at one point as well, didn't you?
1: Yes, I, I met up with Lee in uh, Halifax, or perhaps with Dartmouth, just over the river from Halifax. And we grabbed lunch together a couple of years ago. And it's, it's really neat to, to see all his sketches in person. And he's really got a talent for rendering materials uh, on paper. And I was also blown away by how small. Uh, the drawings are. because They're just on little scraps of of paper that he he picks up and then doodle all these watches. Doodle is doing a number of his pieces a disservice.
0: Yeah, I was going to say they're not exactly doodles. Uh, Some of these are quite complex and quite impressive for the amount of time he has.
1: Absolutely. The odd one is a doodle, uh, which is completely understandable. Trying to do a drawing every single day. Uh, But I I applaud what he's done and it's really impressive. And he's come up on the the show before, he's inspired certain pieces that have uh, come to light within the the horological world, and he has had a very strong and pronounced hand, actually, recently with uh, the Hebring and uh, one of their most recent pieces. Yeah, he's a a great guy, and uh, it's really neat to have been able to to watch him uh, grow and, and and blossom as a not just a a typeface designer but uh, also as a designer within the the horological community. It's nice to see him doing so well and getting the
0: attention that he deserves uh, because he does do remarkable work and his designs are great.
1: So what sort of things did did you and Lee discuss or or delve into over drinks?
0: A lot of it was related to some of the challenges behind turning a typeface into something that's usable for a watch. Uh, When you're designing something for print, for instance, you're dealing with something that's relatively large and it's a little bit easier to deal with because there are sort of known quantities that you're dealing with. Uh, With something like a watch dial, uh, the print size becomes challenging and you have to make changes to the weight of the font as you're uh, miniaturizing something. And you've got a few competing interests there. Uh, One is that it needs to be something that's usable and legible. Uh, So it needs to be something that you can actually look at and quickly figure out what time it is. So that's the primary function of it. It has to be a functional dial. Uh, But then once you move past that, you decide, okay, do I, you can have something that's really large or really, you know, really large type, but then it becomes less interesting because it's sort of a bit ham-fisted. So there's a balance that you have to make uh, with the numbers, making them more elegant uh, versus making them more legible and making sure that that, uh, that balance is kept. And making, and you can do that through making subtle changes to the typeface itself uh, so that it's just a little bit different than what you might be using for something in print. And you can see this. There are a lot of people using stock typefaces on their watches. Uh, so you'll see a lot of Arial, for instance, or a lot of Times New Roman. And they're not making any changes to it. And, and you can see that with the problems that those dials run into. Sometimes the legibility isn't uh, as good as it should be.
1: So is that influenced at all your your thoughts on on what you've been working with for your dial?
0: Yeah, it certainly reinforced a couple of ideas that I've had. And as I've mentioned before, because I I don't have a lot of experience working on dial designs, uh, it was nice to be able to get some of that that reinforcement. Part of what I'm doing right now is making things that I know are definitely not going to be what I end up with going forward, Uh, but I don't know what works. So I've made a contact sheet with 30 or 40 different designs on them, and a lot of the design differences are pretty subtle. Uh, some of them may have slightly larger fonts in places. Uh, some of them I'm moving things around a little bit. And that's just trying to help me figure out what works and what doesn't, and what's legible and what isn't. It's really easy to design something on, you know, like a 27-inch monitor, and it's 18 inches in front of your face, and you're looking at it blowing up seven or 800% and saying, oh, that looks perfect. You know, it's a nice subtle detail, and that's going to look good. But then you print it out, and you look at it at 100% on a piece of paper, and it's barely visible on the page. So it, it becomes important to experiment a lot and try different things, and that's sort of the stage that I'm at right now. So certainly some of the conversation has improved my understanding and has also reinforced some of the things that I already thought about. It's also interesting to see as I keep these designs to see sort of the evolution of what it is that I'm doing and where that, that watch style is going. And compared to what I've been doing from some of the earlier ones, it's uh, certainly improved quite a bit.
1: So what else did you, you and Matt, the watch nerd, chat about?
0: Yeah, the other thing that I mentioned to Matt is, uh, speaking of dials, was that I've been looking to talk to somebody about pad printing and learn more about it. Uh, something that you and I have spoken a little bit more about here on the show And pad printing is a process that a lot of watch companies use for printing the text on the dial as well as other graphic elements. And it's something that I just don't know very much about. So I was mentioning to him that I wanted to chat with somebody about it. And he was very kind to introduce me to Crispin Jones, who's the owner of Mr. Jones Watches. Now, they're doing some fun things with watches. I love what they're doing with a lot of their dials. They're playing around with some really great graphic design and some interesting methods of changing time. And so Crispin agreed to have me come by the shop and chat with him and Paul, who is their dial printer. So I jumped on that opportunity. And that was actually the same Wednesday that I went to see Grant McDonald's studio tour and also to the Secret Cinema that evening. Uh, So in between, I managed to slip in a trip to Mr. Jones Watches in the afternoon. And uh, yeah, that was quite a quite a, a Wednesday that I got uh, a lot of things done. Yeah, Crispin was kind enough to invite me out there and show me the process of what they're doing. Uh, he talked a little bit about the techniques they're using and some of the challenges that they've had working uh, with dial printers in the past overseas. And and now they're printing all the dials themselves. And then it was also great chatting with Paul, who does the print work in, for them. And chatting with them a little bit about the process, what's involved, and it's solidified in my mind the fact that pad printing is definitely the technique that I want to go with moving forward on my dials. Uh, it's just going to mean the, the text and other graphic elements are going to be nice and crisp and and exactly what I'm looking for.
1: Mm-hmm. It's really hard to match it with any other technique, both with the dimension and the, the quality of the, the print that you can get
0: the quality of printing that they were getting just blew my mind uh there was one interesting dial they have that they were assembling a bunch of at the time it was a 24-hour dial and instead of having a hand the dial itself moves around and as it moves the scenery changes on that dial so there's a lot of nature scenes and, and animals as it goes around and it sort of moves from daylight into darkness and on the darkness side of the dial it's reverse printed. So they have a dark blue background uh, to represent the night. And then the animals are just very delicate white lines that are just showing through the plastic from the dial side. Uh, So they're doing this reverse, this reverse printing. And it's such a difficult technique to do, but it looks absolutely perfect. and You get these beautiful, delicate lines. I didn't realize that that was possible to do. And the consistency that they're getting, the print quality they're getting of that very, very fine detail is just remarkable. Same thing with, with some of the lines that they're getting on some of their other dials. The the very delicate lines that they're able to reproduce with pad printing, they're so much finer than I realized. And uh, it's it as I said, it's certainly solidified in my mind that the, it's going to be the technique to use.
1: And I was surprised when you, you sent me a, a photo from the shop that they are are using pad printers that are made right here in Canada, just, just a few hours from where we live.
0: Yeah, I know. I had to go to London, England to find out that the company they're using to make pad printers is actually in Markham, Ontario. And since then, I've actually spoken with the company. Uh, Kent Printers is the company there that made the printer that uh, Crispin's using. And uh, I've, I've done some research on their printer models and whatnot, and I suspect at some point I'm going to end up buying one. I don't know that I'm going to initially, uh, just because I think I can get away with printing the first few dials without needing a higher-end printer. Uh, so I think I have some ways of of taking care of my initial needs for pad printing that are going to be relatively simple. But certainly going forward, I can see the advantages of having a high-end printer doing it. And while this printer is certainly beyond the capacity needs that I have, I think dry printing, they say, can do something like 1,800 actuations per hour. I'm certainly never going to need to be able to print, let's say, 1,000 dials per hour. Uh, but it's more the fact that it's going to be able to produce the consistency that I need and have perfect registration every time. Uh, sometimes having the right machine is incredibly useful and and can speed things up.
1: One of the other nice things I noticed about the particular printer that they're using uh, is that it, so it has a magnetic cup for holding the ink and, and automatically uh, filling the engraving that you are pad printing off of and most uh, promotional videos that, that you see from watchmakers and whatnot, you'll see someone filling in the engraving by, by hand with a spatula and, and making sure there's no trace of paint anywhere and then bringing the pad over and, and pressing it down and then and dropping it down on the dial. Uh, and that is a very time consuming, uh, messy, uh, smelly way to to pad print and having one of these magnetic cups means that all those fumes are contained all that mess is contained and the whole process of of filling and then cleaning away any excess ink uh, from the the engraving uh, is just made very simple very seamless, very quick, and this is one of the reasons why that you can crank out 1,800 prints per hour off of one of these machines.
0: Yeah, and I think that being able to do print runs of, let's say, 20 dials at a time, it's just going to make sure that I'm producing that consistency. And if I decide to do multiple colors on a dial, it will make it significantly easier. Uh, in the end, it's going to be worth it to have a printer that can handle that sort of work, even if I'm only using it you know, let's say once every fortnight or whatever. And, and looking at the process that I'm going to be using, which is going to be far more manual, uh, like what you're suggesting, it, it's in the time that I can print five dials by hand, I, I could probably have 100 dials done on one of these printers. And sometimes just that that time savings and accuracy and consistency, it's worth having the printer around for that. And I think I think with Crispin's dials, the most complex one he has has something like 18 colors on it. And when you look at them, they are perfectly printed. Uh, sometimes they're printing on the crystals, sometimes they're printing on the on dials and they're getting absolutely perfect registration every time. Uh, so yeah, I think that it's going to be worth it uh, just to avoid the hassle of having to manually set it up every time. And honestly, this may open up other options for other types of pad printing that I might do, and other places that may need pad printing, whether it's on packaging or or something like that. Uh, I've also thinking about putting my logo on the movement with this, and maybe use it for doing other things like putting in serial numbers and whatnot.
1: Now, looking back to Jones, did you get a sense of of how they're actually engraving? the the patterns that they're pad printing are they using a uv process or a more manual process no they're just using
0: a laser to do it Uh, they've got a fiber laser there and that's what they're engraving with yeah and in fact that's what most people these days are doing uh to engrave plates Uh, if you pay for a service to make a printing plate they're going to be using a fiber laser it's significantly faster more reliable uh, and it's really the best way of doing it these days Yeah, they've got a fiber laser on site so they can quickly iterate and uh, experiment as well. Uh, Unfortunately, I just don't think I can justify having a fiber laser right now. I'd love to have one because it would make uh, certain things like engraving uh, significantly easier. Uh, I'd be able to engrave my own pens and watches and things like that. Uh, But I just don't see the ability to justify one of those right now. Uh, They're just a little too far outside of my price range. Uh, most of the fiber lasers I've seen that would be appropriate are in the $20,000 U.S. range. And for the amount of work that I'm going to do with it, I, I just can't justify owning one right now. I'd rather send it out to somebody right now and somebody else can do that work for me. And just as a final note to about Mr. Jones' watches, I, I do have to thank Crispin for the invite and, of course, Matt for the introduction. Uh, but thank you very much to Crispin for the invite. It was a really nice surprise wasn't something that I had planned on doing when I landed in London. But by the end of day one in London, I'd had uh, this incredible invite to go out and uh, see what they were doing. Uh, he didn't know me at all. And so it was really nice for him to invite me out there. So thank you once again to Chrisman for the invite.
1: And then from London, you made a pilgrimage once again to Upton Hall. What did you get up to at the British Horological Institute this time around?
0: Yeah, when I was in Upton for the Day-Date Automatic course back in May, uh, Xana Perry, who organizes the courses for the BHI, mentioned there was an upcoming chronograph course. And so, of course, I asked her when it was, and it turned out it was the week following the Goldsmiths Congress that I was speaking at. Uh, So it was not very difficult to convince me to sign up for that and stick around for the extra week to go to the chronograph course. And, of course, continue on with that core sequence of courses that they have at uh, the BHI.
1: And is this the, the final course that you can take? Or is there more to, to learn after this? Well, of obviously, there's more to learn after.
0: Yeah, obviously, there's a, a lot more to learn. Uh, but in terms of their courses, they really have three primary watch courses. So they have the basic mechanical, the day-date automatic course, and then the chronograph course. They also have a basic lathe skills course, uh, which I don't think I'm going to do. I suspect I'm a little more advanced than what that course is directed towards. Uh, I think it's geared more towards people who've never used a lathe before, Uh, so it's not really appropriate for what I'm doing. Uh, But as of right now, they really only have the three courses that are appropriate for me and that I'm interested in. Uh, They do also have a build your own watch course, uh, which you can do after you've Finished the basic mechanical course, uh, but again, that doesn't really appeal to me. I'm already building my own watches, so it doesn't doesn't really appeal to me. If they were to add something like a you know an advanced timing course or something like that, uh, that I would certainly be interested in doing. And uh, I just don't know that there's enough demand for it right now. Uh, but I suspect if there is, uh, they would be happy to put something on. So how was the course? Uh, the course was excellent. John Murphy was the instructor again. Uh, he's taught the previous two courses that I was on. He's incredibly patient and unbelievably knowledgeable and has a perfect personality to be teaching a course like that. Uh, so it was a pleasure to be sitting in the classroom with him again. And then I was also fortunate because a number of the other students who were there were people I had met on previous courses. Uh, so it was nice to be able to catch up with a few of them and uh, spend a week with people that I already knew. Uh, I'm I'm always sort of sad that I don't have the time to be able to devote to doing a longer term uh, course. Uh, it would be nice to do something like a two or three year program somewhere and be able to really sit down and dig into this stuff and learn it properly. But learning five days at a time, it's nice, but it's just not enough. And while it's better than nothing, you know, unfortunately, I, I just don't have the time right now to to do a two year program.
1: You were working on a variant of the Etta seventy. 70- 750. based itself on the the Valjoux 7750. Uh, But this is no ordinary 7750. It's kitted out to the nines. Uh, What complications were on the watch beyond just being a chronograph and and having a date?
0: Yeah, this was a 51. So this had everything but the kitchen sink in it. Uh, It had the triple date on it. So day... Date and month. Uh, it also had a moon phase dial on it. And then, of course, it also had the chronograph on there as well. Uh, so, this one had the seconds hand as a subdial. It also had a 30 minute counter on it. And then, this one also had a 24 hour GMT subdial uh, where the second subdial was. So, this watch basically had everything you can ask for in it. Plus, it's an automatic. So, we got a little bit more time working on automatics, which was nice. And this was obviously significantly more complex than the other watches that I've been working on. Uh, it was interesting to see how it was built up and designed and how the additional layers were being added to basically um, bolt on the chronograph portion of it. Of course, the reassembly was, was always interesting to be involved with, but this time it was interesting to see what's involved in adjusting the chronograph properly.
1: It's, it's quite a significant leap going from manually wound at a 6497 progressing up through an automatic with date, and then on to the the 7751 uh both in terms of scale and complexity uh, how did how did you find that
0: Yeah, it wasn't too bad especially because i'd recently done the automatic course and so that that set me up really well for this and For most people, if you're not comfortable with working on tiny things like this, you probably need a bit more time between courses to be able to practice some of the skills and be able to work on these watches. Uh, But I had spent the few weeks in between the two trips um, working a lot on automatics and practicing some of those skills. Now, there certainly are a few things that I do still struggle with on occasionally, uh, certainly when taking apart the Inca Block settings and lubricating those. Some of some of those can be challenging, and it's pretty easy to send a cap a flying, that sort of thing. Yeah, so some of the pieces are still frustrating to work with, but, you know, as I've worked more and more with these watches, it's becoming a lot easier for me to deal with. Uh, but it's certainly important to keep up the practice. If you're not actually in the industry and working on servicing watches on a regular basis, you really do need to get a set of tools, get a couple of movements, and start regularly taking them apart and cleaning them. Yeah, you're certainly going to have a tough time keeping up on the chronograph course if you're not, uh, if you're not practiced on a regular basis.
1: In the vein of tools, I'm curious to know whether uh, John had any specific tips or, or tricks or particular tools for removing and reinstalling the hammer spring. So if it's done incorrectly, you can wind up scratching the bridge that it, that it operates under. Yeah, we didn't have any
0: specialized tools for doing that, uh, but there were. But we were, of course, admonished to be careful as we were replacing that spring. Uh, we did have a specialized tool for adjusting some of the eccentrics on the chronograph, which helped deal with tooth engagement and a few of the other things that are in the chronograph mechanism.
1: So how would you describe the tool for operating on the eccentric screws for listeners?
0: Yeah, it's just a specialized screwdriver. uh, So with a screwdriver with a specialized tip on it to be able to grab the eccentrics and adjust them reliably uh, because you're adjusting them very, very minute amounts, as you know. And when you're trying to deal with this tooth engagement, you're working on teeth that are incredibly tiny. Uh, In fact, I suspect a lot of people without magnification probably couldn't see the individual teeth on these gears. Uh, And then you're trying to engage these two sets of tiny teeth and you only need about a third of a tooth engagement, uh, so trying to get that very very fine engagement is uh, is tough. And uh, these these tools do help you make the adjustments, but they're very very tiny adjustments.
1: Now, did the particular tool you have have any sort of indicator or extension coming off of it, or even just a, a hand from a watch fitted to its shaft, so you can exacerbate the angle that you're turning Uh, mine did not i happen to
0: have my own tool that i brought with me and but it doesn't have any kind of uh, indicator on it so that's just like any other screwdriver that's a good idea i'll I'll probably end up uh, adding something like that to mine i don't know how much work i'm going to do on chronographs Uh, i don't have any plans right now to add a chronograph to my own line of watches Uh, but i expect that i'll continue to work on some chronographs if only to be able to sort of keep myself in shape Uh, as it were to uh, service them it would be something that would make your life a lot easier when making these minute adjustments to the eccentrics Uh, it's so easy to go from uh, being too far out of engagement to binding the uh, the movement
1: Mm -hmm. that makes a big difference so were there any other little tips or or tricks that you picked up from john or, or the other students there
0: yeah, there's so many different tips and tricks that you learn over the week and it's it's difficult sometimes to keep them all in your brain and then be able to recall them. Certainly there's some you know things that are easier ways of doing this or that. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned in a previous episode that I've now done is pick up an automatic oiler and that's certainly made my life easier when it's come to oiling the block settings. It's something that I was struggling a lot with when I was manually oiling them. And so now that I've got that, uh, those little automatic oilers, it's um, uh, made my life a lot easier. So yeah, this, this is a, a really great environment for watching what other people are doing and picking up the little tips and tricks that they're doing. And it's a great environment for doing that kind of thing. You're sitting around with six other people for a week. And so there's, uh, there's a lot of little things that you learn.
1: So at the end of it all, would you you say you are a fan of the, the 7750 and it's kin?
0: Yeah, I think that I am. I don't know how much I would use something like this in my own watches. I do have a couple of 7750 movements, and I may find a 7751 as well. And I'll, I'll probably try making a watch out of it just for my own collection. Uh, but I'm not sure that I would bother trying to sell it uh, because, again, the complexity of making something like this, uh, the case itself isn't too bad. Just a slightly different case with some pushers in it. Uh, so that's not too big a deal. Uh, maybe it's a little bit deeper than some of the other watches that I'm working on. But of course, servicing the watch, which is something I'll need to do before it gets sent out, is uh, a bigger deal and uh, is certainly more complicated. But the biggest part about it is designing dials. These dials are horribly complicated compared to the simple time-only ones that I'm working on right now, even with just a a moon phase complication on it. These chronograph dials get really busy really quickly, and I, I just don't know that I'm interested in trying to design a dial like that. Uh, the ones that I'm working on right now are pretty simple. One is a GMT subdial; The other is a moon phase. And those are really, really simple dials. Uh, the chronographs, most of the dials, I'm not really a big fan of because they're just too busy. And it's a design challenge that I don't necessarily want just yet.
1: That's fair. I can certainly relate to that sentiment. Uh, I can't say I'm prone to want to own very many chronographs. Um, I have one in my collection. It belonged to my grandfather, and, and that's it. I, I've been tempted by owning the odd, iconic chronograph, but uh, having been able to wear essentially any one of them uh, that I that I have wanted for enough time, um, it, it quenched any desire I had to actually own one. And that is due in large part to the fact that I have a relatively small wrist, six and a half inches. So I just find chronographs tend to be rather bulky, and I just don't enjoy wearing them, and I don't particularly enjoy looking at the busyness of the dials, as you noted.
0: Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't mind making one for myself just to go through the process of it and sort of make my own dial for it and see what I can come up with. But again, I would be purely for myself. I I wouldn't mind owning something like a Speedmaster at some point because there are one or two of them that I really like. Uh, but again, I'm pretty picky about them. And, you know, like I wouldn't just buy any Speedmaster. I think there's a couple that I particularly like that I like the look of. I like the dials. I like the hands. Uh, but it would have to be the right one Uh, And it would have to be one that wasn't crazy expensive, which these days is none of them because they all seem to be crazy expensive. And I do have a pocket watch from the 19th century that I want to restore. It's a split second chronograph. And so that's an interesting challenge that I wouldn't mind taking on. It it needs a new case and a new dial. It'll need new hands and is desperately in need of being serviced. Uh, So that'll need to be cleaned up. I think there's a bit of rust on it as well. So that's an interesting challenge that I want to take on. Uh, but that's more of a personal restoration project. Uh, it's not something that I really plan on doing and selling. And again, slightly different system because it's a split second chronograph. So I'm kind of curious to see that and sort of dig into it and see how they've uh, they've done it. And now that I know a little bit more about chronographs and how to adjust them, uh, that particular project is a little bit less daunting than it was before. But I can't see making, you know, 50 watches or 100 watches or whatever that are chronographs. I just, I don't see getting into doing that. I think I've got other things to do that are more interesting than chronos. And chronographs tend to be more of a utility sort of tool watch and they get abused a fair bit. And that's not really the type of watch that I'm planning on making.
1: Now in tandem with these courses that you've been taking at the BHI, you've also been partaking in their distance learning course. How's that been?
0: Yeah, the distance learning course has been excellent. Excellent a lot of the material from the first course, the technician course has been rewritten recently and is very very well laid out. They're also in the process of rewriting their advanced course and hopefully that'll be done sometime in the next year. I don't know for sure that it will be, but I hopefully they'll they'll get that finished soon. Uh, but even the existing material that's there is excellent and certainly worthwhile. So the combination of the DLC courses as well as the 5-day Courses they have it's an excellent opportunity for people like me who maybe don't have the time to do a full program over a couple of years uh, to sort of actually get into learning watchmaking and develop their skills. And then of course they have the BHI exams as well, so you can get your certification. Uh, so overall, it's an excellent program, uh, both the distance learning course and the actual courses that they hold at Upton. Uh, all of them are excellent and worthwhile if you're thinking about getting into watchmaking. And if you don't know if watchmaking is something that might appeal to you, I'd recommend taking the initial basic mechanical watch course. It's worthwhile doing, even if you have no experience as a watchmaker and no experience with watches. I think it's probably doable for most people, and it's a really worthwhile experience. They have great people there. Uh, as I said, John is an excellent instructor, and also Zana, who organizes the courses. Uh, they're all wonderful to deal with. And if you're looking for an excellent place to stay locally, because Upton is not a big place, let's be honest, uh, I do recommend staying at the old schoolhouse in Upton. Jen and Barry, who run the old schoolhouse bed and breakfast, are wonderful people. They have very reasonable rates, and they're incredibly accommodating. Uh, they're used to having a lot of students go through there uh, for the BHI, and they're, they're really, they really are wonderful people. So, yeah, I I highly recommend anybody make the trip up there. Uh, They do have people coming in from all over the world uh, to the UK specifically to take courses at the BHI. There's just not a lot of uh, schools like this that are offering uh, these sorts of classes. And uh, it's worthwhile for anybody who's interested in doing this as well as the DLC program. And this is a, a great way to get into watchmaking and learn a little bit more about it. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter, at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at UnderTheLoop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand.